1: Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.
0: You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Natalie Crawford to the show. Dr. Natalie is certified in both obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Oh my goodness, that is such a mouthful, but I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Natalie here today because she is one of the most reputable sources that I've come across in terms of all things infertility and hormones. There are lots of professionals and specialists and coaches and things, especially in the world of Instagram, that quote unquote specialize in infertility. And I thought it was really important to pull somebody in today who has extensive Training, knowledge, and understanding in this area so that we could get a really good sense of the science and research and data behind this topic. Today, we're going to discuss how common infertility is, what some of the causes of infertility might be, what regular menstrual cycles and periods should look like so you can know when to intervene and seek care or seek an infertility specialist. Even for secondary infertility, which some of you may be experiencing as well. It's an interesting topic. Really happy to have Dr. Natalie join us. If you like this interview with her, you would love her own podcast, the As a Woman podcast, where she dives into things like endometriosis and PCOS, all kinds of things, women's health, really. So buckle up. It's going to be a really great conversation. Hey, Mama. Erica here. Popping in to let you know that Dr. Asherina Reem, aka Psyched Mummy, and I are going to be re-hosting and offering our Mummy Rage seminar live. It was an absolute blowout success last time we hosted this webinar, and we've had rave reviews and feedback. Lots of demand for another live hosting of this webinar, so we've heard you, and we are going to offer it on January 25th. That's a Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, if you can't make the live event, you can purchase a ticket, and I know momming gets hectic, you can have access to the live playback after we host the live event. So show up live or watch the playback, whichever you prefer, but it will be available to you. In this webinar, we go through Understanding Postpartum Rage, learning to identify the true needs underneath the anger and rage, what's really going on, and practical strategies for in the moment. We also discuss ways that you can repair with both your child and your partner or yourself after you've lost your cool, and ways to practice self-compassion so that you can not fall into that spiral of mommy shame and guilt that we feel once we've reacted in a way that we don't feel super proud of. All of this is going to be happening on January 25th. It's a Monday, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can learn more at happyasamother.co slash mummy That's happyasamother.co slash mummy Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today between momming and working and pandemic life and all the things. I so appreciate your time. So thank you for being here.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm just thrilled.
0: This is such an important conversation. And I have to say like a little fangirl moment, because I do take in your podcast and I found it so valuable. So I'm excited that you come to bring your wisdom and share it here on Happy as a Mother. I'm so curious how you came to specialize in working with fertility and infertility. How did the journey, how did your life kind of guide you down that journey? It wasn't a direct pathway, to be honest, but
1: it's something I'm extremely passionate about. And I love that you listen to the podcast. But honestly, I grew up wanting to be a doctor in the very broadest sense. I just wanted to help people. I wanted to have an impact on their life. And I really loved, you know, science and all the nerdy stuff. And when I went to medical school, I had the problem of really loving every field. So in medical school, you do two years of basic coursework and then two years of your clinical rotations where you spend time on everything. And I loved it all. So I really didn't know what to specialize in. And I didn't even really know that infertility was a field. Mm. So I really didn't have a good mentor. And I think that's kind of the take home from this. But I got some advice that... If I wanted to be a mom and be a physician, I needed to pick a field that would be lifestyle friendly and things that had shift work would be much more so. And since I liked everything, I really got steered in the direction of emergency medicine. And I and I loved emergency medicine. So I said, okay, yeah, that sounds great. I definitely want to be a mom. So I matched into that. And in the first years, so the training for emergency medicine's three years of residency. And in my first year, I was just Miserable, and I knew it was not what I was supposed to be doing with my life, even though I really respected my colleagues. And it takes a very special soul to be able to turn it on no matter what and go from patient to patient. It really bothered me not knowing somebody's story like what happened to them when they left the ER or when they got admitted. And I was such a temporary player in their life that selfishly I wasn't getting what I needed from that relationship back. Mm -hmm. And so, did some soul searching and decided to switch into OBGYN. So I did 4 years of OBGYN because I really loved that you could take care of women throughout, you know, different time periods of their life and really get to know them. And it was in my OBGYN residency that I truly fell in love with infertility. It is a very nerdy specialty. So we do 4 years of OB <laughs> I mean it is 4 years of OBGYN and then 3 years of infertility training. The infertility training is half research and half clinical. You have to like love hormones and compounds and chemistry and all kinds of really nerdy stuff. Mm -hmm. But to me, it was like a big puzzle and it just made sense. And I loved understanding how the different parts of the body work together. Plus, I loved you really get to know somebody and Mm -hmm. know their story and be a big part of their life and that was just very attractive to me so i did my 3 years of fellowship and now i've been out in practice for 4 years and it's the perfect job i couldn't imagine doing anything else but it was not the most direct pathway it's a kind of a testament to being true to yourself and not listening to others and getting good mentorship yeah and you know really able to have somebody who knows you and is going to support you because when i changed to obgyn people were Oh my gosh, OBGYN is so hard. You won't be able to have kids. You shouldn't do that. That's crazy. I heard all of those things, but I knew at that time period, it was the right move for me and I needed to not let their opinion sway me. I really needed to dig into what I was supposed to do because at the end of the day, if you're doing a job and you don't love it, at some point, if you're trying to do that balance of the working mom thing... And you mm-hmm. don't love your work, it's never gonna be worth leaving your baby. And that's kind of the place that I came to, said, Hey, this isn't worth it for me, you know, for the long road. So I need to change gears. So that's how I ended up as a fertility doctor.
0: I love it. I love understanding and hearing people's stories. I work with a lot of professional women who have trained for years and years to get into their role. And when they get into it, it's not what they thought it was going to be you know, Mm -hmm. and the uh, disappointment and the kind of life crisis that might come with finding themselves in this profession that they've trained seven to 10 years for potentially, right? Some moms even choose to stay at home depending on how their priorities or their values shift when they become a mom. So these are hard decisions to make, but so worth it when you get the right fit, right? The right values in line and the things that serve you and feel really good. I totally
1: agree with you. I couldn't not agree anymore. You've got to do what's right for you and silence out some of the other people at some point because you're the only one truly in your own shoes.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I have seen you had posted, oh, goodness, this is probably going back into either the beginning of this year, maybe late last year. You had posted a picture of you on Instagram in front of like all of the credentials and certificates and degrees that you have on your wall. And you were talking about people in the field who call themselves like experts or, you know, in the fertility field. This is something I see a lot. And we're going to go into this conversation about fertility, uh, what is normal, what is not normal, when to reach out for help, maybe normal cycles and things like that. But if we could quickly touch on on what makes somebody a a safe expert to reach out to in this area, because I do see, especially in the social media realm, lots of people who claim to be like hormone specialists or fertility specialists. And so how, how do people know what to look for? Oh, this is my soapbox.
1: I mean, this is exactly why, (laughs) (laughs) honey, Um, this is why I got on social media because I realized that a lot of physicians weren't on there when I joined. And the reason Mm. why we're busy and training and seeing patients, but there were a lot of, we'll just say like alternative providers who were being very loud and vocal and some are fabulous and some are not. And there was Mm. nobody to counter some of the misinformation out there. And my field is so trendy. I'm truly a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility physician. I did four years of OBGYN and three years of REI. I hold two board certifications, one for each of those, which required sitting for a written exam, submitting cases, sitting for an oral exam. And I keep up with these certifications every year, which means I have to review the latest research and know that I'm keeping at the top bar of this. Mm -hmm. Other people will say they're a hormone expert, fertility specialist, exactly what you said. They may truly be a coach who just likes hormones, or they may be somebody who went through infertility treatments and are calling themselves an expert. They may be an acupuncturist or a chiropractor or somebody else, and not that some of these health individuals don't have things to add because I honestly do love blending the holistic side of medicine with our like contemporary modern treatments. Mm -hmm. However, I think the number one thing is somebody needs to be very transparent. When you look at who is giving you information, so we'll use myself. When you go to my bio on Instagram, for example, it says Mm -hmm. really clearly that I have an MD and I'm board certified and what I'm board certified in. If it just says fertility specialist or hormone expert, Well, who are they? And are they being forthcoming with their credentials? And people who are, I think that's great. Okay, this is an acupuncturist. That's the angle they're coming from. Now I know that. Right. The thing is that alternative medicine is very interesting, but it's called alternative for a reason. And they've rebranded it to be things like integrative medicine or functional medicine. But really, these words are all things that are not evidence-based. And evidence-based means there's science to support Mm -hmm. it. Some alternative health providers really do look towards the science and are really good advocates for promoting care of women. And that's great. There's a lot of other people who use fear to try to get something. So they're trying to scare you about birth control pills. So you buy their birth control pill cleanse or they're trying to scare you that your period blood is abnormal. So you take their course or whatever it is. And I think that that's one thing that is this person getting a secondary gain from you? Are they trying to sell you something and who are they? And people who are transparent with their credentials, I always say that's a much stronger place to be coming from because I think we all understand, especially in the type of COVID that Science is real and it's very important and paying attention to what we've learned, people who've dedicated their lives. I haven't dedicated my lives to studying hormones in a lab. I did for three years, but there's people that all they do is study thyroid hormone and the research that they put out, we should be utilizing that to help guide us on how we treat the thyroid. Mm -hmm. I just think that understanding who they are, you should clearly state your credentials and you should... Think about, are they getting something from what information they're giving you? Most of us who are actually, you know, physicians in the field, we are truly doing this because it's a passion of ours and we went into medicine to educate people. So we are spending our time in social spaces purely to try to help bring facts and science to the general public instead of having it be a secret or something you have to come in for a consult to get.
0: I think it's so valuable and I see it in the mental health field as well. Lots of like life coaches and coaches and, you know, variations of therapists popping up, which doesn't mean that they don't have a message, but they don't have the credentialing and the licensing and, you know, the training and things to back up some of the roles that uh, some of these other sort of alternative professionals might find themselves in, right? So I think that it's so important as we are going into this infertility conversation, we're going to talk about like how common it is and what the causes are to really know and understand kind of who we have here to represent this conversation because we kind of have to do our due diligence and fact check sometimes. I think it's really important.
1: Well, and thank you for having me, for trying to support the science too, for picking somebody who is an expert in the field to come on and talk about these things. That means a lot. And it shows that you are doing your own kind of due diligence and homework and background.
0: So yay. Thank you. Yay. Yay, I'm so excited. (laughs) And you had recommended uh, Dr. Kristen as well to come on and she had come on to talk about medications and pregnancy in like an earlier episode too. She was amazing. Oh, she's fabulous. Yeah. So why don't we dive in a little bit to fertility and how common it might be for women. And I'd love to hear some of the most common causes as well that you see in your practice.
1: I love it. So the traditional thought is that infertility impacts one out of eight women, and there's some recent data showing that it may be even more prevalent than that. It's been increasing in more recent years. So we're starting to see new statistics that approach one out of six. And so for something that's quite common, it is not really talked about amongst friend groups and peers as much as it should be. It is starting to be, and we're seeing more of it on online spaces. And I think that's really important because the fear and the stigma and the isolation for people who are going through infertility that nobody understands where they are from their own friend group, they feel left behind because their peers are moving on into baby and school things and they are still waiting for that to happen. It can be a very, very lonely time. But their top causes of infertility can be ovulation issues. So if you don't have regular periods, regular and predictable, that is a sign that you are having an ovulation issue. Mm -hmm. You can have tubal or blockage or uterine abnormality, so anatomical issues. You have to have open fallopian tubes for egg and sperm to meet and a normal uterine cavity for an embryo to implant. And male factor infertility, which is some issues of sperm, and it's not all is sperm there or not. We always think about that because you will have people say, oh, it just takes one sperm. But really, we need a whole army of good sperm that are moving in the same direction that are normally shaped to exert enough force to crack open that egg and let that one sperm in. And so those are the most common causes, although there's a huge group, about 25 to 30%, which falls into an unexplained infertility category, Mm. which is one of the hardest because as humans, we love to think really critically. If this is the problem, then this is the solution. Mm -hmm. So it's very tough to go through, why am I being left behind? Why is this happening to me? Okay, I did a bunch of testing. Oh, now it's, You don't know why it's unexplained. And I always say unexplained doesn't mean that nothing's wrong, but it means that nothing that's easy to diagnose is wrong. And there are specific treatments indicated for that. So we really have to get a whole big picture before we can say what is going on with a couple. Although warning signs, things that drive me bonkers is when the classic definition of infertility is a couple who is less than 35. For the female age is less than 35 who've been trying for 12 months and have failed to conceive. Mm -hmm. Or a woman who is 35 and older who's been trying for six months. But things that drive me nuts is these really don't account for. You need to be having regular periods and having intercourse in your fertile window for those to count. So if you only have a period every other month, then something's wrong already and you should not pass go. You should go right to an OBGYN or your fertility doctor Or if your partner has issues with erection or sex is really painful and you can't always complete the job, you should go right to a fertility doctor. You don't have to just let time pass and do nothing. And I think the last thing is that women who have a suspicious history of potentially having an abnormality inside their body, like scar tissue in their fallopian tubes, history of chlamydia, history of endometriosis or high suspicion, history of multiple abdominal surgeries, especially things that cause an infection. So a good example is a ruptured appendix and you are in the hospital on IV antibiotics. Those things can block your fallopian tubes. And so I will see women earlier in their journey and we'll do a workup. And sometimes we say, hey, everything, everything's normal. Do you want to now try for the 12 months and then come back? Or sometimes, oh my gosh, we have found X, Y, or Z Instead of wasting time, because it's not going to happen, let's accelerate things so we can get you towards that baby faster. So it is never too early to go and get an evaluation.
0: Yeah, I've heard that a lot, the 12 months of trying before being referred out to infertility specialist. And from a mental health perspective, like I see a lot of moms during this time or after this time, right? And it's just so hard for them to, one, wait through this time not knowing and then to start the process after they've actually been maybe struggling with anxiety or worry throughout those 12 months. And then to get to you and say, well, well, maybe there is no clear answer up front. This could, this is kind of unexplained for the time being from a mental health perspective and an uncertainty and anxiety perspective that's a lot for women to confront and deal with. And I'm sure you see a lot of that too. Like you probably ride the roller coaster with these clients of, you know, the devastation and the news that you've got to communicate to them sometimes. And yeah, it's a hard process for moms to take in.
1: Uh, One patient that resonates with me was 38 and trying to get pregnant and went to go see her OBGYN because she had regular periods, no issues with sex, no pain. And they'd been trying for about six months. And her doctor said, oh, we'll just wait till 12. It'll probably happen, which she was older. So that was not the greatest advice. Mm-hmm. However, when she came to me, we did a semen analysis as part of the normal evaluation to check sperm. And her husband had no sperm. He had something called azospermia, And he actually made sperm. He just didn't have the connecting tube, the vas deferens, which allowed the sperm to get from the testes. Into the ejaculate. And so they were able to conceive with IVF and a testicular biopsy to get the sperm out. She just felt so cheated of that time that they were forced to keep trying. And those months, you know, in retrospect, had a 0% chance of having a baby. And I think that just really strives home is that these things that we say, like six months or 12 months, those are population based averages to provide guidelines. Every couple is unique. And there's no one answer for everybody. And should you see a fertility specialist? If you're worried, the answer is always yes. We will always see you. Yeah. And same thing when women say, oh, well, should I freeze my eggs or when should I do that? If you're asking the question, it is time to at least explore the answer. What you choose to do with it may determine on data that you get during the process. So the fertility doctors of today, we're very pro-knowledge. You can't make decisions on data you don't know. And I say that to patients all the time. We can't just assume things are normal. We actually need to go and check because I don't really know what is normal for you or not for you. And interesting data is showing that professional women are high stress groups, so at least in female physicians, the prevalence of infertility is double. So it's one out of four. And that could be a variety of factors. But even when controlling for age, because female physicians tend to get started a little bit later in life, we see this persist. And we think that is because harsh training environments, the stress on our body, abnormal sleep patterns, high cortisol, not taking care of ourselves or things like that, which actually impact our bodies and how we function. And I think one misnomer I see people talk about all the time is thinking that the ovaries are like this protected little shell, but no, they're just something in your body. And what impacts the rest of you is going to impact them too. So a great example, cigarette smoking. So if you smoke cigarettes, you will have an increase in genetic abnormalities of your eggs, so worse quality, and you will run out of eggs faster. And that is proven. So things that you do actually do have an impact later. And I think that's one thing that we don't talk about as much because infertility has been so secretive for so long.
0: This is a perfect uh, sort of segue into a a great question I think that a lot of people have is there's this myth or this, and maybe it's not a myth, this common conversation, I guess we could say, about as we age our eggs age and we should freeze them and thinking about this at a certain date and time. And I remember this from one of your podcast episodes. I don't remember which one. They're all blurring together. But where you very clearly break down the science behind when eggs start to deteriorate and what that looks like and what that means for your fertility.
1: Yes. So again, I love science and data, and I love epidemiology, which is a study of populations, where where all this comes from. But we see women fall on both sides of the curve. So when we talk about averages, some women will have good quality eggs later, some women will have poor quality eggs sooner. And so it's not a, hey, this is hard and fast, what applies to everybody, but it helps give us guidelines and kind of an understanding of where we are. The easiest way for me to explain it is if you think about the ovary, imagine that inside your ovary is a vault where all your eggs are kept. And when you're born, the vault is full. And when you go into menopause, the vault is empty. And I do not know why, but the eggs inside the vault are all frozen in a stage of cell division called meiosis. And the stage is metaphase. And that's when your chromosomes meet in the middle. So if you think about a normal female is 46 XX, a normal egg is 23X, and that's going to combine with a 23X or Y sperm to become a new baby. However, the eggs are still in that 46XX stage when they're frozen, and they're paired up 23X, 23X. Imagine them in a line down the middle, and they're held apart by these little proteins called meiotic spindles. And it is the job of those little proteins to split the chromosomes perfectly when you ovulate. So when you are 20 your chromosomes have been holding in that perfect pattern for 20 years. And when you're 40, they've been holding there for 40 years. And proteins degrade inside our eggs just like they do the rest of our body. This is really important because this is why the toxins that you're exposed to, they get in there and they can increase the rate of that degradation. So cigarette smoking, chemotherapy, radiation, probably environmental toxins like BPA and phthalates and PFCs. Also, if you give vitamins and nutrients, eat a lot of plants, take some certain supplements like maybe coenzyme Q10, some of these things can help stabilize chromosomes. So it can't reverse damage, but it may degrade at a slower rate. Approximately at age 35... You're going to start to see about a 50-50 split in your chromosomes, meaning half the time when you ovulate, it'll be normal and half the time it'll be abnormal or genetically abnormal. And that's why women, most women you know, have age 35 like in their brain as a Mm -hmm. magic number. Like for some reason, that one little fact got passed on to everybody and they don't really know why. But you also get some nice marks on your medical chart, like advanced maternal age or geriatric. Oh, my God. The words that I hate. Yes, But that's why. Because suddenly now you have a chance, a higher chance of having, I guess it's an equal chance of a genetically, you know, abnormal egg versus a normal one. Now, most genetically abnormal eggs will not fertilize and will not implant. And so pregnancy rates start to go down. If they do implant, you have a higher chance of miscarriage. It is not that you have the highest chance of having a live-born genetically abnormal child, but that's why we do genetic screening in early pregnancy. So 35 is in our head because that's this 50-50 split. And when you get to age 40, it's going to be about 25% normal. And that number really kind of hits most women. So you can see between 35 to 40 suddenly you have this rapid decline in what is normal. At age 30, you're still very common to how you are in your 20s, which is 70 to 80% normal. And so you have a drop between 30 to 35 and then a drop from 35 to 40. Mm, Okay. And then after age 40, it starts to drop profoundly. And after age 42, it's like 5% normal, which is not zero, but it's very unlikely. So we start looking at these numbers because they directly correlate with the probability of pregnancy per month. So if you're age 20 and you're trying to get pregnant, you have about a 25% chance per month of getting pregnant. And if you're age 30, it drops to 20%. And if you're age 35, it drops to 15%. And if you're age 40, it drops to 10%. You know, so we see this Mm -hmm. increase of Infertility as we get older directly proportional to the increase in the genetic abnormalities of the eggs. And so, this to me means a few different things. One, for women who are in their upper 30s or 40, I don't really set a timeline on them that they have to try for even six months. If you say, Hey, I'm 40 and I want to get pregnant, and I just met my life partner, or I'm single, but I'm ready to, to do it on my own. Just Mm -hmm. come in, just come in. Let's see where we are because six months may make a really big difference for you. There's no magic number of having to wait. And I think that when you're talking about should I freeze my eggs, there is really no downside to it. Overall, it is a low risk procedure. No procedure is no risk, but it's very low risk. It does cost money, so that's the number one downside. However, studies have shown that women who have frozen their eggs, even who have not gone on to utilize them because they either decided not to get pregnant or because they got pregnant on their own, they did not regret that decision. The money was still worth it because of the peace of mind that they had, that they at least had a door open. Mm -hmm. I hate when people call egg freezing an insurance policy. It's not, right? We don't have any guarantee of anything, but it is an opportunity. You are saying, I know I'm getting older. I am not close to ready to start my family. And so I want to put some eggs in the freezer when I both have more of them and they are better quality because that's going to increase the return on that investment later. The magic age per studies looks like it's probably around 32-ish. Meaning if you're 32-ish and starting your family is not in sight, yet it is an important reproductive goal for you, you should explore egg freezing. And I've had women come in and get ovarian reserve tests, which are blood tests and ultrasounds to try to see how many eggs you have left, which is not a perfect test by any means. Mm -hmm. But if you're running out of eggs early, then you know, man... I really do need to do something or I may, this window may close for me. I may not have this chance. And there's this really bad misnomer that women who are younger are not going to run out of eggs. The youngest patient I've had who's ever received donor eggs was 26. She had normal periods and then they just stopped. And I have women in their you know upper teens or early 20s who went into early ovarian failure. The thing nowadays is a lot of us take birth control pills or combined hormonal contraception or have Mirena IUDs in place or don't have periods for another reason. So these things may get diagnosed at a later stage. And that's all fine. I have nothing against contraception. But the point is, is having a family is a goal for you, you don't know what you don't know. And so getting an evaluation, if it's something you're considering, is always going to be welcomed by the fertility community and egg freezing for example it takes about two weeks so it's not this huge imposition on your life so the best age to do it is whenever you're thinking about it and ready we love seeing women freeze their eggs in their upper 20s or early 30s because we know the chance of those eggs from one cycle making it into a live born baby for them later is much higher Mm. but we will freeze eggs in women who are older because it just may be where they are and when they're ready.
0: Right. It's so interesting. And like what is coming up and what I'm thinking about is so ridiculous, but it's actually a episode of the Kardashians where (laughs) Chloe is going to the fertility specialist to see the quality of her eggs because she knows she's going to want a sibling for true. And she's like going through the whole process with her doctor and they air like however many of the scripted moments of it, you know. Uh, but as you're kind of describing some of these things, I'm like, oh, yeah, like it brings me back to Chloe's conversation with her doctor. But yeah, I think it's so important and so empowering for women to know this information, because like you're saying, if you're 32 and you haven't met your partner yet, but you know this is a part of your goals, it's something to be empowered in and to have the information so that you don't uh, regret or don't, you know, like I think that there's something so important for us taking our our health and our, our future into our own hands. It's empowering to have this information.
1: I completely agree and I always say you know what you if you're single versus if you're coupled it's really different so let's say you are married or you're with a long-term partner and you're 34 but y'all are not ready to start a family y'all can have a really honest talk what if it means if we're not able to get pregnant because we wait so late would we be okay adopting or using donor eggs or some alternative method yes you're okay with that okay then let's just wait and see where we are when we're ready oh, you're not okay with that? Well, then maybe we should do something now so that we can have our own child since that's what we want. The problem is if you're single, you can't make presumptions about what your partner may say. So if you just haven't met that life partner, you may tell me, I don't care about genetics. I'm totally okay if we just adopt or if I use donor eggs later in the future. And that sounds great. If the love of your life completely does not feel okay with that option, Where are you left? Are you left being childless when you potentially didn't have to, or you really wanted to be a mom because we just let time pass and didn't intervene? And -hmm. I think that's one of the hardest things when we are single is that you and I can have a talk about it all day long, but we can't make presumptions for an unknown person because they have the right to feel how they want to feel about things. So I think that's where I love egg freezing for single women who are at that junction It also takes some pressure off of the relationship because it's not like, oh, man, I'm 36. And I mean, if we're going to date and then we're going to get married and when are we going to have a kid and, you know, adding up the time in your brain, it allows you to progress a little more at what may feel like a natural pace because, you know, hey, I have 20 eggs frozen and I don't have to make speedier decisions just because I'm worried about losing my fertility or the opportunity to be a mom. So it keeps that door open. It gives us a chance. And I think that that is really empowering to women because it is not just a passive thing that happens to you. Even if you don't end up with the outcome you want it to have, you can look back and say, well, I did everything I could. You know, this is kind of how the cards fell. I can't do anything about it, but I did everything I could and I have peace with that and I can have closure knowing that that versus looking back, like you said, and saying, man, I really regret this or I wish I'd frozen my eggs or why didn't I? and having this built up resentment about the choices that you made.
0: As busy moms, the last thing we need is more on our to-do list. It's hard enough to remember who needs what packed for school, when the next doctor's appointment is, and when to register for events, let alone remembering to call and cancel subscriptions that drain your finances every month. That's why Rocket Money is so great. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You can see all of your subscriptions in one place. And if you notice something that you don't want, Rocket Money can help you cancel it with a few taps. They even try to negotiate lowering your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com momwell. That's rocketmoney.com momwell. Feeding the family is one of the most all-consuming parts of The Invisible Load. Meal planning, shopping, trying to balance nutrition, finding the time to actually cook with little ones needing your focus and attention can be so stressful, but Factor makes it easy. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals take the mental load off your plate, providing pre-prepared, chef-crafted meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to select from, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan plus veggie and more you can even choose from over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons including snacks and smoothies with factor there's no prep and no mess the meals are 100 percent ready to heat and eat in just two minutes that means no cooking and no cleanup which is great for busy moms you can choose the schedule that works for you and your family Choosing 6 to 18 meals per week and pausing or rescheduling your deliveries is quick and easy. Reclaim some time and reduce your mental load with Factor. Head to factormeals.com momwell50 and use the code momwell50 to get 50% off. That's code momwell50 at factormeals.com momwell50 to get 50% off. If your house is anything like mine, breakfast is the most frantic meal of the day. We all want to start the day off with a wholesome meal for our kids, but the time crunch makes it difficult. Magic Spoon helps relieve the morning rush with tasty cereals high in protein for a great start to the day. Magic Spoon offers a variety pack with four delicious flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And it has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five grams of net carbs per serving. Each Magic Spoon cereal is made with wholesome ingredients and no artificial flavors or dyes. And since it's gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free, it's great for a variety of dietary needs. Go to magicspoon.com momwell to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code MOMWELL at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund you your money, no questions asked. Try a delicious bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash momwell and use the code momwell to save $5. And would you say... Like where does secondary infertility come into this? I assume a lot of the audience that's listening probably already has one child and they may still be with that partner or they may be single and and looking for another partner and contemplating conceiving down the road with somebody else. Secondary infertility, does the same rules apply in terms of the trying for so many months or... Or how would you kind of guide people who might be experiencing some secondary infertility? Yeah, secondary infertility
1: is really hard for people when it's happening because it usually comes out of the blue. The classic story is we got pregnant with our first baby, you know, after just months of trying. And now, you know, we're ready for number two. So we prevented up until we were ready. And now it's been a year. And what's going on? So it really takes people by surprise. It is, it is prevalent. You have about a 30% rate of secondary infertility. And what that means to us is that it happens to more people than who are talking about it. Women who experience secondary infertility feel like they're in a really interesting spot, meaning they don't necessarily identify with the infertile community because they feel this, well, you already have a child, so you don't really fit in with those of us who are struggling to get to baby one and we would love to be in your shoes, yet they're not, mm-hmm. they're still suffering, right? They're still having something going on. They have their version of their family is not able to be filled. There's something missing. And so it's not like they're perfectly normal either. So it's a really weird in most spot. And most of my patients will tell me they feel in between. Like I can't really identify with the infertile world on social media yet. I feel left behind and I'm still having these infertility reactions to my friends who are announcing their second babies and I want my kids to be close together, but now years have gone by. Officially, the same rules do apply, um, meaning six months if you're over 35 and 12 months if you're under. Okay. I always think there's certain things we should think about as far as, you know, if your periods have not come back um, to a regular fashion, then that's not normal and you don't need to waste time. If your periods have gotten extremely painful, there could be underlying endometriosis and you should consider getting an evaluation sooner. If you had a really traumatic birth, so if you had you know a really bad C-section, if you had an infection, if you lost a lot of blood, if your placenta was retained, so any of these birth complications that wasn't just a normal routine run-of-the-mill vaginal birth or routine C-section, Those are things that can play a role and really distort your anatomy. And I think a lot of us feel like stress plays a big role here too, because I think we all can agree that trying to get pregnant when you have a young one at home is different than trying to get pregnant when you don't have any children,
0: (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah, just making it happen alone, right? Like a lot less kind of like a sexy time. You're not as relaxed. It's not as, you know, wine and dine kind of situation. It's a lot more calculated and maybe more pressure and you're more tired. Lots of different things contribute to that stress, I'm sure. And most women have a
1: huge pressure in their mind, and and I'm this way too, so I'm not judging you guys about how close together you want your children to be. And when it starts to, so you have this narrow window where it's like, okay, if it happens in these few months, then it's perfect. Right. And if it's taking longer than that, then suddenly what you wanted is not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And there's this extra added pressure. The reality is most, if everything is normal, most people will get pregnant in about four to five months. So that's, you know, if you're at 20% per month, most people get pregnant in about four to five months. And so if you're not, especially if you got pregnant Earlier, I tell most of my OBGYNs in town just to send send to me at six months for these secondary infertility patients. Hey, if you got pregnant easy with baby one, and now it's been six months and you've you know been trying, you've been tracking, and you know your cycles are regular, and it's not happened, that doesn't seem normal for you. And so let's do an evaluation because we don't want to let more time go by, especially with the added stress and emotional frustration.
0: I appreciate that approach and and like. I think reflecting on the first time how that happened, it may have been really easier. It may have been even a surprise for some moms, right? So there's so many different pieces to how stressful that can be to then be focusing on trying and it might not be happening. Yes. And there's so much like a low sperm count. I
1: will counsel couples who have a low sperm count. Well, sperm changes every three months. But with a really low sperm count, as long as there's some sperm present, your chance of getting pregnant per month is usually going to be 2 to 3%, so not zero. But what if your baby, your baby number one, you just fell on the really good side of the 2 to 3% odds? I mean, that's great. You know, now we're looking at it could take you, you know, what is 2 to 3% per month? You know, years and years to hit that again. We don't know where it'll be. So sometimes there's underlying problems. Some problems get worse with age, like endometriosis. Some male problems can be totally different. So sperm that you had two years ago is not the same sperm that's hanging out now. Plus, women are, are older and there's more stress. So I think there's a lot of factors that make secondary infertility both more surprising but harder. And I like to see them a little bit sooner. And sometimes... We do an evaluation, everything's fine. We talk through it based on the couple's age and their desires. We say, okay, well, now that we checked everything out, you're going to go try for a few more months. And we set a time. Give it some time. Yeah, we set a timeline of when you're going to come back. But also, I can't tell you how many times I've found, oh, your fallopian tubes are now blocked, or oh, the sperm count is now low, or whatever it is. And thank goodness we didn't wait longer because how frustrating would that be?
0: One of the things you've referenced a couple times is like normal cycles. And it brings me back to one of your other podcast episodes as well. I think it was the PCOS episode where like really breaking down what regular cycles look like, because I was hearing it back and I'm like, oh, okay, you mean to tell me that my cycle has been irregular regular all my life and I should go see my doctor? Good. Thanks for that. You know, So can we break down what that might look like? Because for example, and we can kind of use myself as a guinea pig, like I have... Uh, I would say there were regular cycles, but they actually vary between like 32 to like 44 days, depending on. Yeah, those are not normal, girl. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm very fortunate that we had no challenges getting pregnant or anything like that. But I was like, hmm, maybe I should go consult my doctor about this. But everything else about my cycle seemed regular to me. So can we unpack that for moms that are listening? Like, what is a normal cycle even really supposed to look like?
1: This is a great, great question. So number one, studies have shown that subjective reporting of your cycle is really inaccurate. Meaning if I ask you, hey, are your cycles regular? I get a yes answer most of the time. I would totally tell you yes, for sure. Because women are like, yeah, I I get a period for sure. And then if I say, do you track it in an app? Can I look at it and see when your day one is? I will actually look at it and say, nope, it's irregular. So women are really bad at interpreting what is regular or not. So, and I think this is part of the medical community's fault as well. So Mm -hmm. a regular cycle is a cycle which comes at the same interval every month within a variance of only a couple days. So for example, if your period is 28 days one month, it should be 27, 28, 29 days the next month. So you should not vary all over the place. Cycle day number one is the first day of full flow bleeding. It is normal to have maybe a day of spotting before you get into full flow, but it is not normal to have lots of days of spotting. So lots of days of spotting ahead of time is also a sign that something may not be functioning perfectly. Now, a normal cycle can vary per population of women anywhere from 21 to about 35 days. But that means that for you, if you're a 21-day person, it should be 21, 22, 23, 22. Or if you're a 35 person, it's 35, 37, 35, 30, you know, it should not jump from 21 one month to 35 the next month. So I see a lot of women and I call it irregularly regular. Like you're not truly skipping lots of months, gotcha. but it is not coming at that perfect, predictable interval. And there are things that can cost this. So sometimes it is thyroid disturbance. So your thyroid hormone is made from, or the hormone that controls your thyroid being secreted is made from the pituitary gland in the brain, which is also where the hormones that control ovulation are. Another hormone is called prolactin and abnormalities in prolactin can impact your period as well. And we see this with breastfeeding. And so this is part of why when you breastfeed, your prolactin is really high and you usually do not have a period, at least at the beginning. Other things include PCOS, one of our most slash least favorite things as reproductive endocrinologists. PCOS is irregular periods, which is due to a failure of the ovary to respond to a normal signal from the brain. And it's usually associated with other androgen-like symptoms like having acne or like a little bit of extra facial hair, and a certain look of your, ultras- your ovaries on ultrasound, But PCOS is super important because you have abnormalities of progesterone, you have an increased risk of insulin resistance and diabetes and high blood pressure and cholesterol because these higher testosterone levels put you at risk for more of those male type diseases. And so that's going to play a role in not just getting pregnant, but in your lifetime health of medical facts. And then some women with stress, so high cortisol levels impact the brain, so that can change how your hormones are being released. I like to use the example, it's now we're in a pandemic, but I always used to use, hey, if we're back in the day and you're in a pandemic or a famine and it's not a good time to have a baby, you're going to be stressed. So your cortisol is going to be really high because your body is in that survival mode and you should not get pregnant in survival mode. The problem now is so many of us live with chronic stress, and so our cortisol is always high, and you know that can have irregularities in your period too. So there's a lot of different things. Reproductive endocrinologists and gynecologists, we call your period your fifth vital sign, meaning we should ask about it, and we should understand when is your day one, and do you have spotting, and does it come at regular intervals? And if it's not, yep, I'm 28, 29 days on the dot, you should probably get help and make sure you don't have one of these issues. Some of them like thyroid is really easy to correct with medication. So not all really hard to fix.
0: And for those who are listening who may not be trying to get pregnant, but may have irregular cycles, who would they speak to about that? Like their general physician who tracks with them for their care? Your general OBGYN is the best person to talk to about it. Some family doctors
1: or internal medicine physicians can be really great about it or whoever your, you know, PCP is, but or OBGYN, this is their bread and butter. So if your menstrual period is not regular, we want to know why. And all these different causes can have different long-stream impacts. So if you have no period because the brain is not sending out the right hormones to do so, you may also have really low estrogen levels. And low estrogen levels can lead to a higher rate of Alzheimer's disease, cardiac issues, osteoporosis, can cause vaginal dryness and difficulty with sex, can make you have mental like shortness, like harder to concentrate, harder to remember things, a shorter memory span, because you're not supposed to be young with low estrogen levels. That's reserved for women in menopause. So there's a lot of different things going on that can impact your whole life. And sometimes it's not just your reproductive life. It's actually your body. You know, your body is supposed to have these hormones made to function normally. So if your periods are not normal, do not just ignore it. I would say talk to your gynecologist so you can get an evaluation. And the caveat is that there are some hormonal contraceptives that will make you have abnormal periods. So progesterone, IUDs, Depo-Provera shot or the implant, those will make you have abnormal periods. So that's a very different segue.
0: So it leads me into the question of what can women be doing at home to support, whether it's their cycle or their infertility? Maybe those are two very different questions. So maybe we can focus on infertility if they're very different. What is it that women can be doing themselves to support this? Because I've seen you talk about this quite a lot as well. So
1: they're not really different. They're really quite the same answer, and what we said earlier is what's good for your body okay. is good for your ovaries. And it's is good for your eggs. It's good for your fertility. It's good for your period. So it's not news breaking information that, you know, eating processed foods and foods that are higher sugar and refined carbohydrates, those things are not really good for you. And eating whole grains and fruits and vegetables, those things are better for you. It does appear for fertility or for women with anovulation, so irregular periods, that for every serving of protein that came from animal sources like meat over vegetable sources like plants, there were higher rates of anovulation and infertility in population-based studies. So that supports trending towards a plant-based approach. Now, it's not all or nothing, so you don't have to be full-on plant-based. If that's not a sustainable lifestyle for you, let's not set unrealistic goals but I will tell patients, OK, well, why don't you say you're going to have, you know, meatless Monday and then the other days you're going to have a meat serving and just one of your meals instead of an every meal and start to explore how do you bring in more fruits and vegetables when you're not having meat with every meal? There are some things. So endometriosis is a condition where you have really painful periods, high in inflammation and autoimmune process. That, you know, it looks like red meat specifically is even worse for you. So I really tell patients who have endometriosis to avoid red meat. If they're going to eat meat, to maybe focus on foods that have good omega fatty acids like fish. And so thinking about the things that are good for your overall health, that's going to help. So fruits, vegetables, vitamins, whole grains, limiting meat, although you don't have to avoid it. You do want to avoid toxins, so stop cigarette smoking. You want to look at your life for environmental toxins. This is hard to study, but emerging research really is starting to look like it is impacting multiple things. So don't heat up plastic in the microwave or in the dishwasher and convert over to using glass or aluminum to drink out of and investigate your makeup and your other products so we can see what chemicals you are putting in and on your body And then stress, stress is a really, really hard thing. You know, how do you combat stress? We definitely don't want to be stressed about being stressed, but getting good sleep, finding time for you, whether it's meditation or journaling or going to counseling or yoga or whatever can work to have an outlet to connect with yourself and how you really feel. Exercise, you know, look at your life and kind of don't be afraid to say no to things so that you can carve out time for yourself. And these are really hard things to do even though they are easy for me to say. And this is where alternative medicine can be really great. So some women have a huge benefit from massage or acupuncture. And studies have shown that acupuncture has no difference than what we call sham acupuncture. Sham acupuncture is where the needles aren't placed in the right spots. It's more of a pressure-based thing. However, I think there's something to be said for carving out 30 minutes or an hour of your time in a calm space where you can't be answering your phone or emails or pulled to the side by kids or your partner or work. There's nothing else you can do. And that's really important for your mind. And that has a lot of benefits to be able to lower that cortisol, lower that stress hormone, and really be able to prioritize you. So that's like a whole lifestyle, whole thing there. So you can just be focusing on that, but I think that for too long, medical providers and physicians specifically have ignored that side of things, have not talked about nutrition or the environment or stress or any of those things with their patients. And I really feel like that's a disservice. It's your one person, your one body. We really need to focus on all of
0: those things to get you into the best place for your overall health, but especially your reproductive health. Yeah. And it makes me think about clients that I've worked with who are going through infertility or people who might be more like anxiously wired just in their temperament and then are faced with this really hard uh, sort of uphill journey of trying to get pregnant and trying to conceive, whether that's the first time or the second time, and how important it can be to learn even skills for managing anxiety and worry, because this is something that can become all-consuming, and I'm sure you see that with clients, right? Like it takes over everything, just like when you're pregnant. I think uh, you make lots of lifestyle changes and changes to to nurture baby. It's like that before baby even is there to try to make the most kind of comfortable, cushy, welcoming environment for this little babe to try and take root. And it feels like a lot of pressure for a lot of moms, a lot of of worry and anxiety. So I would say even bulking up on your toolkit in terms of some therapy and how to manage these worries and how to practice some mindfulness, be in the present moment and not be so entirely preoccupied, which is obviously easier said than done, but there are tools that can help you at least have moments of reprieve from from this journey as well, because it can be tiring and, and grueling on, on women and couples in general. I completely agree. I also want to say that there's no
1: shame in going to therapy, especially couples therapy. This is really hard on couples to suffer from infertility, especially secondary infertility. And so having a safe place to have it not be pressured to speak openly is really, really important. And I try to encourage every patient I see, we actually, with Kristen Lassiter's group, all of our patients who go through IVF, they get a free consult with them as part of their packages with us because we think that this is so important to get mental support in the throes of infertility.
0: Yeah, I feel like, wow, my brain is just like, come up with so many more questions about like normal cycles and like all of these really empowering endometriosis and these things that we need to be empowered in to take over the reins on our health a little bit and have the kind of boldness and courage to ask and and know whether it's normal or not and I feel like there's just been sort of this timid approach around our own health. Um, It's not hasn't been talked about. And that's why I appreciate physicians like you in the Instagram space, really empowering women with these conversations. So appreciate you taking the time to come today. Where can people find your podcast? Where can they find you online? Sure. Thank you so, so much for having me. So the
1: podcast is called as a woman. And there's topics on both fertility related issues and female empowerment. I'm on YouTube with shorter videos specifically about fertility on Natalie Crawford, MD. And my website is nataliecrawfordmd.com. And I practice in Austin, Texas at our boutique brand new fertility practice called Fora Fertility, F-O-R-A Fertility.
0: And we'll link all of that in the show notes that you can find. I really encourage you to check out the As A Woman podcast. Lots of interesting topics that you can kind of, depending on what you're going through or where you're at in your like health and fertility journey, lots of things there for you to dive deeper into. And yeah, I thank you again. And I'm sure we'll be, I'll be calling you back one of these days to, to head deep into one of these other topics. So let's do it. Thank you so much. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job.